Let me just pray one more time and ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would fall abundantly in this place. Father, we ask for fresh grace to see Christ in your holy written word. Your word says that man can't live by bread alone, but by every single word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Lord, would you feed us with your word this morning? Would you feed our faith and cause our faith to grow, to love Christ more, to love each other more, to love the lost more, to love your commandments more, to love you? Oh, Father, would you fix our gaze upon you? Remove the distractions, as my brother prayed, from our minds and help us to have a singular focus upon your truth, upon your truth that transforms, your truth that changes, your truth that sanctifies. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Your truth that exposes sin. Your truth that encourages our hearts. Your truth that is used to help us persevere. Your truth that awakens the affections of our hearts to love our Savior more. Oh God, would you please work in us. Lord, help me to, to hide behind the cross and to let your word do the work. Apart from your power and grace, I can't do anything up here. I'm just a mailman delivering the mail. And as I deliver your word this morning, I pray that it would fall like a hammer. I pray that it would encourage, convict, and build up your church. So God, please, bless your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the last time we were in the book of Timothy, I preached a message entitled, The Soldier, the Athlete, the Farmer. And in that message, we saw... In the beginning of chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we saw how Paul was telling Timothy to entrust the faithful men the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, what you have heard from me and in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we told Timothy to entrust this gospel to other faithful people who would carry on this gospel. And then we saw that he gave uh, these, these metaphors. 
He gave these metaphors of, of a soldier, and then a metaphor of, of an athlete, and then a metaphor of a farmer. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul told his beloved son Timothy to be strengthened by grace and to pass on the gospel baton with the denial and devotion of a soldier, the discipline of an athlete, and the hard work and diligence of a farmer. And the next six verses that we're going to be looking at today, verses 8 through 13, Paul tells Timothy to endure suffering, to endure suffering, remembering Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, and the gospel that is unchained and powerful. To remember that God's promises are trustworthy and true. Paul told Timothy that, In order to endure to the end, he must keep his eyes fixed upon Jesus. That the example of Jesus and the promises that are found in Jesus is what is going to motivate Timothy to be faithful for Christ and to faithfully proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the midst of hardships, trials, persecution, and apostasy, Apostasy meaning those who depart from the faith. So in verse 8, Paul tells Timothy that if we are to endure suffering, we must remember Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Look at me, or look at verse 8 with me. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. I think it's very interesting that he says, remember Jesus Christ, as the the first words that he says. And the reason why I think he says, remember Jesus Christ, is because the truth is when we're in trying circumstances, or when we are in trials or going through certain things, a lot of times it's it's easy to forget and to not see our Savior in those moments or remember His promises in those moments. Life has a way of of sucking the life out of you. Trials have a way of, of taking your focus off of Christ and onto the trials at the moment or onto the suffering. And Paul And saying to his beloved son, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, fix your gaze upon him. I mean, here it was, Timothy was facing persecution. He was facing false teachers who were proclaiming a false gospel. Here it is, Paul himself was in prison. And he's in prison for the sake of the gospel. He's in prison for proclaiming Christ. He's in prison for telling people that Jesus is the only way. So as Timothy hears from his mentor, there could be temptations for Timothy to take his eyes off of what is most important as he looks at the persecutions, as he looks at the trials, the hardships that he's going through, the false teachers rising up. 
And Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Look to him. You got to keep your gaze and your focus upon Jesus. And it's the same exact way with us, ARC. In the midst of trials, in the midst of hardships, and everything that we're going through, now there's a temptation to focus so much on the things that we are going through that we're not looking to Jesus. But we must look to him in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the suffering, and look to his promises. And those are the things that are going to strengthen us to continue forward. So he says, remember Jesus Christ. The other reason why I think he says, remember Jesus Christ, is because he's pointing him to the perfect example of what it looks like to suffer and endure. Jesus was a man who suffered many things. We sung the song, A Man of Sorrows. He endured and suffered so many things, but he, he was faithful and faithful all the way to the end. And I believe Paul is saying to Timothy, remember Christ who suffered and suffered all the way to the end. And that's your example. And if Christ suffered, you can expect to suffer as well. But remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Now, that's the part that rocked me. Because he's saying he didn't just suffer, Timothy. He didn't just go through trials and endure hardship. He was faithful to the end, and he rose from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, Timothy... You can expect to rise from the dead as well. Because Christ is risen, you will experience a resurrected body, Timothy, and be in glory with him. There's eternal life because there's eternal life in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you have eternal life. So he's trying to fix Timothy's gaze upon Jesus knowing that this present suffering is only momentary, and because Christ has risen from the dead, he has all victory. And because all victory is given to Jesus, he can persevere in the midst of the hardest circumstances. So he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. It's interesting that Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and the offspring of David is right next to each other. Why did, he, why did he take time to expound this letter in that way? Well, this is the reason I believe why. All throughout church history, we have seen people affirm God being divine, but reject God being Jesus Christ as a human. So you'll have people who affirm that he's divine, but reject that God is Jesus Christ, who is human. Or you'll have people who will affirm that Jesus is human, but not divine. We see that with our Muslims, our, our, our Muslim friends, who will say that Jesus Christ is a prophet, but he's not God. And they even have high respect for Jesus Christ, but they don't believe he's God. So you have seen people affirm 
Jesus as being human, but not God, and others who have affirmed God as being divine, but not human. But here it is. We see the divine in human. We see Jesus Christ risen from the dead, proven that he is God. He is divine. And we see the offspring of David. He, he came through the line of David. We see that he's human. The Bible calls Jesus Christ, and, and the, the calls it the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man. And because he's fully God and fully man, he's the mediator. And he makes it possible for sinful creatures and sinful humans like us. Christ makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God. Because of Jesus Christ, the gap has been bridged between wretches and a holy and righteous God. For those who repent and put their trust in this perfect Savior, this offspring of David, as he said, which is preached in my gospel. <laughs> For you who may be here who may be searching, maybe you heard what I said and heard the word resurrection and you're like, ah, I, don't, I don't know about that. Listen to this quote by Tim Keller. It says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Muhammad is still dead. Joseph Smith is still dead. Followers of Buddha, and the one who started the religion, still dead. Jesus Christ is alive. He has risen. He is alive now, sitting on the throne, making intercession for us right now. He lives. Our Savior lives. Our Redeemer lives. If you don't know this Savior who died but not only died, who was buried and who was resurrected. I want to lovingly call you to respond, to put your trust in him. Because he rose from the dead, it, he has proven that he is God. He has defeated sin, death, and the grave. There is no other God that is like this God. He is the only true God. The only true God. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ, his Son of whom he has sent. 
If you're here today and you're searching for a way for your sins to be forgiven, know that your sins can only be forgiven in Jesus. You must turn from your sin. You must recognize that you're a sinner who has offended a holy and righteous God. And you must put your trust in faith in the righteousness that only Christ provides. You must repent and trust in Jesus. And he says, whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Hallelujah. In verses 9 and 10, we see that to endure suffering, we must remember the gospel is unchained and powerful. So, verse 8, to endure suffering, remember Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Verse 9 and 10, to endure suffering, remember the gospel is unchained and powerful. Verse 9 says, for which I am suffering bound in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul says, I'm bound in chains as a criminal. The Greek word criminal there we can find that, that same Greek word where the criminals that the Bible talks about who are being crucified next to Jesus, we could find that same Greek word there where it says criminal. It's those who are being crucified next to Jesus, those who have did crimes. And here it is, Paul is being treated as one who did a crime. And his only crime was that he preached the truth. His only crime was that he preached Christ. And he says, I'm, I'm bound in chains as a criminal for this message. This man believed what he preached. This man was willing to suffer for what he preached. He believed that this message was a real message that transformed and changed and delivered people and made people new creatures in Christ. He was bound in chains as a criminal, suffering. But he says the word of God is not bound. <laughs> He's in prison bound, but the word of God is not bound. We see in Philippians 1, 12, starting there. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel <laughs> so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, my imprisonment is for Christ. This is the reason why. It's like it's not because I stole anything. It's not because I, I did something to break the law in regard to stealing a horse and chariot. <laughs> But I'm in prison for preaching the gospel. And it's being, known, it's being made known to everyone. This is the reason why I'm in prison, for preaching Christ. And he goes on to say this, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word. Here it is in prison. He's being an encouragement to so many other believers, and the gospel's still spreading rapidly. He's in prison, but the word of God continues to go forth. 
He's bound in chains, but the word of God is not bound. There's a woman by the name of Esther Ankem, and she, she has a powerful biography. Um, this is taken from the book Forgotten God by Francis Chan. And it reads this. It was during World War II and the Japanese occupation in Korea that Esther's journey of faith really began. She refused to bow down at the shrines set up in every corner of her country and was eventually in prison for six years. From 1939 to 1945. Knowing she was destined for prison, she, for refusing to bow down to idols, Esther spent time training herself both physically and spiritually. Each day she would find and eat food that was decaying, knowing that was what she would receive in prison. The discipline she demonstrated was humbling. How many of us would choose to eat rotten foods? While preparing for prison, she memorized more than 100 chapters of the Bible and many hymns because she knew she would not be allowed to keep her Bible. She spent countless hours seeking God through fasting and prayer. These times when she read the scriptures led to greater clarity, and she was able to surrender her fear of being tortured. When she eventually was taken to prison, God used her in countless ways. One night, a young Chinese woman convicted of killing her husband was brought in. She moaned consistently and beat the doors until the guards tied her hands behind her back. It was this woman God called Esther to love and to reach out to. Esther held the woman's feet at night to warm them, even though the woman was covered in her own human waist. Through food, and though the food, was ration, though the food rations were small, Esther gave up her portions for three days to this woman. Over time, the Chinese woman began to respond carrying on conversation, and eventually accepting the good news of the gospel. The woman was later executed for her crime, but she went to her death alive in Christ. Even though believers are bound, the gospel is not bound. Here's another one. This is from John MacArthur's commentary. Before the communist conquests in the late 1940s and early 1950s, there was more than 700 Christians in China. During the subsequent cultural revolution, at least 30 million Chinese were slaughtered, including most Christians. Yet after more than Forty years of brutal oppression, imprisonment, and executions, the Church of Jesus Christ 
in that vast country has a current membership of an estimated 30 million to 100 million people. Although written copies of scriptures are still scarce, the truth of God's word endures in their hearts. Its power cannot be bound. The more it is assailed, the more it prevails. You can chain the messenger, but you will never be able to chain the message. Never. Because the gospel is not bound. So you have believers who are chained and in prison in Asia and Africa and the Middle East and so many other places, but the gospel continues to spread because God's word is unstoppable. If it ever reaches the, if, it, if we ever reach a day where we're, we're preaching and proclaiming Christ and we are thrown into jail here in the United States, I believe that day is coming. For preaching Christ, know that the gospel is not going to be silenced. The gospel is going to continue to spread because this is an unchained gospel. You can't chain this gospel. People all throughout history have tried to burn in Bibles, bury in Bibles. They tried to silence the church, but they weren't able to silence God. So because God was moving through the church, the gospel continued to prevail, and thousands of years later, it continues to do so. God is going to accomplish his work. No ifs, ands, or buts. And this is why Paul could say in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul knows that God is going to accomplish what he, is, is, is what he wants to accomplish through his word. And because of that, Paul, he's like, man, I'll endure, I'll, I'll endure everything for the sake of the light. I'll go through whatever it takes to preach and proclaim the gospel to them. I'll suffer I'll be persecuted. I'll die. And I know the message won't stop with me. I'll endure everything for the sake of the elect, the elect God's chosen people. God has chosen people. And because Paul knew that there were chosen people, he knew that when he preached and proclaimed the gospel, no matter what persecution came, he knew that God was going to call his people to himself. There's so many people that would say, well, if you believe in election, you probably don't do evangelism. Because if God has already chose people, why would you need to go and preach the message? Well, if that's the case, why do we see Paul who says that I suffer everything for the sake of the elect, preaching so vigorously, so passionately, driven to preach Christ and Him crucified. Because he understands that it's through the message of the gospel 
It's through the means of the preaching and proclaiming of Christ that, that God brings his people to himself. How can they hear without a preacher? How can they believe in whom they have never heard? As Christians, we must believe what Ephesians 1 says, that before the foundation of the world, he had chose people to be his. But we also must believe and hold the tension that they will not respond if they don't hear the message. And because of that, we have to preach Christ. And as we preach Christ, election should give us a confidence knowing that his people will come. They will respond. When you share the message of Jesus Christ with your family, with your friends, on the block, at work, wherever, if they're God's chosen people, they will respond. And we don't sit here try to, trying to uh, figure out who God's people is. That's not what we're supposed to do as Christians. We're supposed to spread the message as wide as we possibly can and leave it up to God. He's going to do his work. No if, no ands, and no buts. Here's a question. Do we have this type of commitment? When it comes to preaching Christ, sharing Christ. And then here's another question. Do we have this type of faith? Because it could be that we wrestle with faith of whether or not God will really save this person or save this person that might cause us to shrink back from actually sharing. Part of it could be fear. Another part of it could be, ah, I shared already Part of it could be, uh, what if he doesn't? If God has called this person and chosen this person, the message will go forth and change their hearts and call that person to themselves. Rest in the confidence of the gospel. Rest in the confidence of God's word. So he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation. The salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's like, I want them to obtain salvation. I want them to attain salvation with eternal glory. I want them to have eternal life. I want them to be in heaven. I don't want them to perish. I'll do whatever it takes so that they don't perish. I'll do whatever it takes so that my mom doesn't perish, so that my friends don't perish, so that my neighbors don't perish. I want them to obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It was like, I'll do whatever it takes. This challenges me. And I pray that God would give me that type of fervency to share Jesus with people. In Acts 18, 9 and 10, this is beautiful. Acts 18, 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. And this is what he says, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And he goes on to say, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have 
many people in this city. Paul was at one point fearful and he receives this vision and God tells him to go on preaching and proclaiming because he's like, I have many people in this city. You just go and preach the message. You just go to Kenya and proclaim Christ. I have people in Kenya. You just keep proclaiming in Southeast, ARC. I have many people in Southeast. You just keep preaching the message faithfully. They're going to come. They're my people. We just got to be faithful, church. Faithful. We don't got to be great evangelists. We don't have to be great missionaries. We just need to be faithful followers and just share the message of Christ. Amen. Verses 11 through 13, he says, To endure suffer, suffering, remember God's promise, that his promises are trustworthy. Verse 11 says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. It explains itself. If we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. Jesus said, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says, if you try to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. If you try to hold on to what you think is life here on this earth, you're going to lose it. It's not life. But if you lose your life, if you follow me, if you deny yourself and follow Christ, you'll gain it. True life is found in Jesus. It's like if you want life, that's found in Christ. Jim Elliott said this quote, and it's so powerful. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, the things of this world, Cars, money, jewelry, clothes, all the things you can touch, taste, feel. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The salvation that is in Jesus Christ, you cannot lose that. And that is eternal. That's eternal. It's the greatest gift Do you know him this morning? And for us who do, does Jesus look better than anything in this world to us? Is that really a reality for us? Verse 12 says, if we endure, we will reign with him. If we persevere in persecutions and sufferings and hardships in this Christian life, We have a promise that we will reign with him. That's incredible. We just don't receive eternal life, but for those who are in Jesus, we will also reign with him. It's like we're going to be doing a ministration with him in heaven. (laughs) We will reign with him. But then he goes on to say something that's very sobering. He says, if we deny him, He will also deny us. 
Now, this is not talking about the type of denial that we see in the life of Peter, right? Because Peter denied the Lord. Um, it's not talking about a temporary denial. I thought it would be good for me to actually read that passage out loud. You can find it in Luke if you want to look on with me. It's in Luke 22. Peter denied the Lord three times. Luke 22, starting at verse 54. It says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. How he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. So Peter denied the Lord three times. But it wasn't a final denial. Because we know that Peter repented. And Jesus said to Peter, he said, Satan wishes to sift you. He wishes to sift you, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. So there's a type of denial that is temporary. And God's sovereign grace rescues your heart from yourself. But there's also a denial that, it, that is final. A denial that leads to apostasy. And I believe that this is what this verse is talking about when it says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. This is a denying, a denying of us. If we deny him, if there's a, 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 a denial that leads to a, a final denying of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's like if you, if you acknowledge me in front of men, Jesus says, I'll acknowledge you in front of God. He'll say, I know him. I know her. But he says, if you deny me in front of men, I'll say to the heavenly Father, I don't know him. I don't know her. I'll deny you. 
This is sobering. And this is a warning. If you feel your faith this morning, if you feel anything to resist the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're feeling a tugging to surrender all back to him, do so. Do not harden your heart, but respond to the gracious and merciful master, the same master who showed mercy to Peter. May you find that same mercy at the cross, if that is you this morning. In verse 13, he says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There are two interpretations of of this verse, verse 13. So scholars have interpreted this verse in two different ways. Here's the first interpretation. The faithfulness means a lack of saving faith and not merely weak faith or unreliable faith. But Christian, I'm sorry, but Christ remains faithful to his promise of eternal life to those who believe in him. And he is also faithful to his promise of eternal judgment for those who do not believe in him. So that's one interpretation. They would look at these verses and they would see um, two negatives. Um, or, or two positives in, in the beginning. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Positive. If we endure, we will also reign. Positive. And they would say two negatives. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. They would, they would see this passage, uh, these last verses, not as an encouragement, but as a, as a serious warning that because God is, is, is faithful, he'll be faithful to those who are his, but also he'll be faithful in punishing those who are not, who are faithless. And then there's another interpretation that's like this. Some interpret faithless as temporary moments of failure to trust God or having little faith, but we can rest in his faithfulness and to his promise of salvation and keeping those who are his to the end. Now, it could be the first interpretation, but I think it's the second interpretation. I could be wrong, but I think when it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I believe there's individuals who really struggle with faith. And they're struggling. But their salvation and them continuing to the end is not based upon that. It's based upon Christ. And because he's faithful, because he's faithful and cannot deny himself, he will see the most weakened, weakest, wavering Christian all the way to the end by his mercy and pure grace. I love how the ESV translates these last verses, the ESV study Bible. It says, the trustworthy statement moves from comfort to challenge and back to comfort. Verse 11b is a reminder of life even in the face of death. Verse 12 calls for perseverance. 
Verse 13 is a reminder of God's persevering power and faithfulness. And this context to deny him must entail a more serious offense than being faithless. Denying Christ envisions final apostasy and contrasts with a temporary lapse in trusting Christ. If we are faithless, those who deny Jesus will be judged forever. But all believers sin, and God is faithful and will pardon, restore, and keep those who are truly his. As Richard Sibb says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Let's rest in the mercy of Jesus. Let me pray.